Hey, I'm Dr. Michael Hunter, forensic pathologist from Autopsy, Reels Channel's medical mystery series on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to download the Podcast One app and subscribe. Then go to reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, to find more programs like this one on Reels Channel. Steve McQueen died today, 50 years old. Steve McQueen was a legendary actor. His remarkable performances won him millions of fans and millions of dollars. When people ask me, what is star quality? I say, Steve McQueen. Everybody loved him. By the mid-1970s, the king of cool was the world's highest paid movie star. Steve McQueen helped redefine what a movie star could be. But the actor, probably best known for his roles in The Great Escape, The Magnificent Seven, and Bullet, died almost unrecognizable in a hospital bed in Mexico on November 7th, 1980. The world lost somebody with real greatness when he died. His death fueled wild rumors, and there were allegations of conspiracy. I was told that a government agent had come in and put a blood coagulating substance in his IV. I'll be unraveling the truth surrounding Steve McQueen's death and attempting to reveal exactly what happened to this iconic star during the last months, days, and hours of his life. World-renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter has conducted thousands of autopsies. He's the chief medical examiner in one of America's biggest cities, uncovering suspicious deaths. I have here Steve McQueen's medical documents and his x-rays. This, along with first-hand testimonies, will allow me to investigate the real reason behind his death. October 1979, Chicago, Illinois, a year before his death. Steve McQueen has been in the Hollywood spotlight for over 20 years. At 49, he's still one of the world's most bankable stars. But while shooting a scene for his latest movie, The Hunter, he's struggling with shortness of breath and has a violent coughing fit. Mark Elliott, author of Steve McQueen. There were scenes that he did where he was so weak. He didn't look right. And when you see them, he looks dissipated. He looks sick. He looks ill. Despite reports that Steve looked unwell during the filming of The Hunter, Steve's records from the year before he died say that he was in fairly good shape for a man of 5'8 and in his late 40s. He was particularly interested in practicing karate, and this would have improved his cardiovascular health, built stamina, strength, and flexibility. Mark Rydell, director and friend. Steve and I used to work out together, but of course he was he was great, you know, he was... He was physically terrific. As well as keeping in shape for his movies, Steve had another reason to look after himself. His children. Christopher Sanford, author of Clean the Biography. Steve's children, Chad and Terry, meant the world to him. And I think uh, they were probably the, the two things that grounded him most and that he cared about most. Steve always ensured his children felt loved and protected. He wanted them to have the idyllic childhood that he never had. Terence Stephen McQueen was born on March 24, 1930, in Beach Grove, Indiana. 
His stunt pilot father, William Terence McQueen, left him and his mother, Julian, at birth. His mother was uh, a hooker, or a lady of the night, as sometimes they called them. And uh, he was a kind of an accident. Julian had relationships with a string of abusive men. At least one of those men took the opportunity to physically beat the young McQueen up. From an early age, Steve learned the value of self-reliance and wariness about the rest of the world that he never lost. As a troubled teenager, Steve ended up in gangs, running away with the circus and living on the street. He used to get into fights all the time. He robbed a lot of stores, did muggings. Steve was sent to the Boys Republic Reform School to try and straighten him out, but he kept running away. He was a rebel, a tough guy. And it added into this aura of uh, coolness. But that famous aura of coolness could have partly been a result of something far more physiological. I can see from Steve's records that when he was around seven or eight years old, he had an episode of mastoiditis, a serious bacterial infection that affects the mastoid bone behind the ear. This can normally be cleared up with a course of antibiotics, but left untreated, it can cause hearing loss. By all accounts, Steve was not taken to a doctor and he did have partial hearing loss in his left ear. Sometimes if people would say something to him, and he would kind of ignore them and just keep walking or something. And somehow that translated into Steve McQueen, Mr. Cool. Deafness was also thought to be responsible for another of Steve's defining features. The famous Steve McQueen squint, that sort of slightly intimidating look he had, was from the necessity of concentrating and listening to what people were saying. So Steve's deafness could have helped earn him the title the king of cool. From a rough childhood to deafness, Steve didn't let anything stand in his way. After a stint in the Marines, he took the now legendary decision to join an acting school. He enrolled in the neighborhood playhouse in New York, where Mark Rydell was also studying. You thought that a person with his background would fail. The minute he showed up, you knew he was special. Most kids in Hollywood who became actors wanted to pretend they were tough guys. He was the real thing. He was incredibly competitive. He was trying to show people the whole time that he amounted to something. It was the hit film The Blob that stamped his mark on the Hollywood Hall of Fame. It's kind of like a, kind of like a mass that keeps getting bigger and bigger and then megastardom hit with films like The Magnificent Seven The Great Escape and Bullet shooting him to the top of the legendary actors list you work your side of the street and I'll work mine when the camera looked at Steve McQueen it didn't see delinquency anger frustration it saw a beautiful talented unique personality in steve's films he oftentimes played very physical roles and this could have had a tremendous impact on his body the medical records state that he had polytraumatisms in other words he had numerous traumatic injuries all over his body 
And these injuries are consistent with the knocks and scrapes that you might expect to see on and off set, as well as in motor vehicle accidents. Mark Rydell directed his great friend Steve in the 1969 movie The Reavers. Steve showed up on the set on a motorcycle. And I said to him, get off that goddamn motorcycle. What's going to happen if you if you fall? He laughed at me and said, getting rid of a motorcycle, my motorcycle, fat chance, he said to me. <laughs> the second the camera stopped turning in the evening, he'd jump on the bike. And sometimes there were hilarious scenes of people physically trying to stop him. Naturally, the studios didn't want an injured star, but Steve McQueen did things his way. I read in some column they were trying to prevent you from racing. Uh, was this yeah, they were, but uh, I, I don't picture myself as being dangerous or anything, but it's terribly important to me. It's an important emotional outlet, and uh, uh, I plan on doing it, and I don't plan on stopping until I make the decision to stop. He was genuinely good, but he quite often came to grief. In 1969, he managed to fall off his motorbike. He broke a bone in his foot. And took all the skin off his left shin. And I mean, he had his entire left leg from the knee down, was in plaster. A couple of days later, he was scheduled to drive a sports car in a 12-hour race. When they finally got him out of the car after the 12 hours, his left leg was just a pulp. I mean, the thing had bled under his cast. It looked like a horror movie. Dr. Linda Papadopoulos, psychologist. He wasn't going to be told what to do or who to be. He didn't make any apologies for the way that he lived. And I think that's, it's that authenticity that, that made him so, so popular. The numerous injuries Steve sustained from his racing escapades certainly didn't lead directly to his death. But it could have had an impact on his general health by weakening his body and causing him a reduced ability to fight off disease. Steve was clearly a man who led life at 100 miles an hour, no matter the consequences. But Dr. Hunter has discovered something in Steve's past that was far more deadly than his reckless racing. On November 7th, 1980, the King of Cool, Hollywood legend Steve McQueen died in a hospital in Mexico. Now, leading forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter is investigating Steve McQueen's medical documents to reveal what ultimately killed him. So far, I've discovered that Steve was riddled with injuries from racing fast cars and bikes, but a bigger concern to me is that Steve was suffering from a terrible cough that became progressively worse this can be a warning sign that there's something far more dangerous going on. He noticed a raspiness, and he thought it was a cold, that it would go away, and it, it, it didn't. It persisted. December 22nd, 1979, Cedars-Sinai Hospital, Los Angeles. Less than a year before his death. Steve has returned to L.A. after filming the movie The Hunter, He's at the hospital to hear about some test results. He was not well. He called it a cold, he called it pneumonia, and at one time he called it bronchitis. But he was too intelligent a man to have been unaware that it was something worse than that. Hi, Steve. 
In fact, his results are life-changing. Steve McQueen is diagnosed with a cancer that affected his lungs. I can see from the x-rays taken of Steve several months before his death that his cancer is infiltrating throughout the right lung and it's spreading and aggressive. When I'm looking for an explanation for a cancer involving the lungs, first thing I'm going to ask is, do they smoke? Steve's medical records state that before his diagnosis, he was a chronic smoker of two packs to up to five packs per day when he was stressed. And that's about 100 cigarettes per day, which is a staggering amount. Steve's smoking was part of his Hollywood star persona. He made numerous ads promoting cigarettes. When I'm off stage, I like to stop and think, figure things out. Got a thinking man's filter and a smoking man's taste. Steve McQueen smoked at a time when everybody was quitting smoking because it was clear that smoking was contributing to getting cancer. But he never stopped. He was rebellious. He wasn't famous for his self-restraint. If something was handed to him, he tended to take it. Name the vice, he had him. But he had him with pleasure. I mean, he never, he was not guilty. He was a wild man. You knew it immediately. If you were an A-list Hollywood star, you drank what you wanted, you smoked what you wanted, and you drove as fast as you wanted. So I think he was living the dream. Although in Steve's report, it does appear that he pretty much stopped smoking by the time that he died. There's no doubt that his years of heavy tobacco smoking would have acted as a tremendous catalyst in developing cancer involving the lungs. However, I believe that there is something far more dangerous than tobacco that's responsible for his illness. When I look deeper into the medical record, I'm surprised to discover that Steve's cancer was a direct result of asbestos exposure. Pleural mesothelioma usually develops in the lining of the lungs and it eventually grows to form a sheath-like tumor around the organ. This asbestos-related cancer can manifest 20 to 50 years after exposure and is oftentimes triggered by heavy smoking. The risk of developing mesothelioma is much greater in those who are exposed to asbestos before age 30. So I need to get a better understanding of Steve's history to determine what the source of this devastating illness is. During his three-year stint in the Marines, Steve was frequently reprimanded for either fighting or going AWOL, usually as the result of a liaison with a girl. He got into trouble and was thrown into the brig aboard the ship and assigned uh, jobs cleaning pipes, scraping off old uh, insulation, <coughs> which was filled with um, asbestos. He did that for six months. He did nothing but breathe in all this asbestos. In fact, Steve McQueen was exposed to asbestos on numerous occasions. Asbestos is highly resistant to heat, water, and corrosive damage, which is why it's such an ideal material for everything from Steve's fire retardant suits to the brake pads and exhaust pipes on his beloved motorcycles. Inhaling asbestos causes microscopic fibers to be lodged in the lining of the lungs. 
The body is incapable of expelling these fibers, so there's a chance that they can mutate the genes and develop into a cancerous tumor. Because mesothelioma cancer is not isolated, it's much harder to treat than other cancers. It spreads. What could be crucial to delaying Steve's death are the decisions he makes next. The L.A. doctors suggest he try the established treatment of chemotherapy. He had been offered chemotherapy and um, had decided against it after he learned of the side effects. So he didn't really have any conventional treatment. Chemotherapy is usually the medically advised way to control or destroy most cancers. Cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs disrupt the way cancer cells grow and divide, but they can also affect normal cells. These healthy cells can usually repair damage caused by chemotherapy, but cancer cells can't and eventually die. Allegedly, Steve didn't like the idea of putting chemicals into his body, so he rejected chemotherapy. And beyond this, his physicians didn't feel that there was much more they could do for him. When the doctors said to him, you can't beat this, his immediate reaction was, screw you. I'll, I'll fix it. No, 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 no. January 1980, Los Angeles. Having rejected the established medical advice, Steve has chosen to ignore his cancer diagnosis. He knew that it was serious, but it was a period where either through sheer obstinacy or fear or combination of things, he just wouldn't deal with it. I think he didn't believe it because it was so incongruent with who he was. He was this tough guy. He was a survivor. He wasn't somebody that, that got sick and died. Mesothelioma is certainly not an illness you can ignore. <laughs> Steve's cancer was spreading and he was running out of options. <laughs> it's Dr. Michael Hunter. Did you know you can stream the autopsy television series, including this episode, on Steve McQueen? Well, you can. Just download the Reels app and subscribe to see the TV show behind the podcast. And if you've got Prime, it's on Amazon channels too. Once you're streaming, you'll find more real life and death programs from Reels like Copycat Killers about murderers inspired by movies. You'll also get access to Murder Made Me Famous the real crime series that profiles people like Jody Arias and Drew Peterson, who are household names because of the murders they committed. It all comes from the real-life mystery fans at Reels Channel. Find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Legendary actor Steve McQueen died in a Mexican hospital age 50 years old. Dr. Michael Hunter is trying to piece together the reason for Steve McQueen's death by pulling apart his detailed medical records. So far, I've discovered that Steve McQueen has pleural mesothelioma cancer because of his exposure to asbestos and compounded by his love of smoking. I can see that Steve's cancer started in his right lung and then spread across to his left lung. It then infiltrated the lymph nodes on the left side of his neck, and then a few months after diagnosis, it formed in his abdomen 
making it hugely distended. June 1980, Santa Paula Ranch, Southern California. Steve was diagnosed with mesothelioma cancer over six months ago. I was so shocked to see him. He didn't look like Steve McQueen anymore. He looked... It was almost unrecognizable. Steve has recently married his third wife, Barbara, a successful model 20 years his junior, and they are hiding away on their ranch. Dr. Dwight McKee, Steve's personal physician. They were very much in love, and she was very devoted to him. And they were hopeful that he could recover and get back to a version of his old self. Steve has been in denial, but the pain from his tumors is now becoming chronic, and his body is changing dramatically. The tumor in his abdomen was protruding about like a six-month pregnancy. That constant weight also put a lot of stress on his spine and gave him back pain. Steve can't ignore the problem any longer, so he finally decides to fight and seeks out a form of alternative therapy. In the 1980s, alternative therapies for cancer was very unusual, and hardly anyone was practicing it. Steve has signed up to a treatment program designed by controversial dentist Dr. William Kelly. William Kelly, considered by some a con man, by others a genius. You can't beat cancer in a few weeks. It takes months. It takes months. And generally it takes the average thing, if you do it right, will take at least two and a half years. I think he appealed to Steve, not only because he said, we can fight it and there's still hope, but of course Kelly was a sort of outlaw figure. He had fallen out big time with many of the mainstream American medical cancer specialists. July 31st, 1980. Santa Maria Clinic, Baja, California, Mexico. Just over three months before his death. Dr. Kelly's alternative therapy program uses substances that are banned in the U.S. So he sends Steve to Mexico to see his colleague, Dr. Dwight McKee. It was a place where we'd have maximal freedom to try anything in terms of curative therapy of cancer. We all were hopeful at that point that, uh, that he could come through this. These medical documents reveal information about Steve's alternative therapy. And one of the strangest treatments was the regular coffee enemas he was being administered. And it was thought that that would stimulate both the colon and the liver to process toxins. I'm not convinced that the changes in Steve's bacterial flora helped him battle his cancer. But there are parts of his treatment regimen that may have been somewhat helpful. Steve took 100-odd pills a day as part of the Kelly program. These were all supplements. You're taking coffee enemas every day. People think of coffee enemas as something weird. Why wouldn't anybody do that? But Steve really looked forward to them. He's also eating organic fruit and vegetables and consuming regular vitamin-boosting smoothies. The supplements and smoothies would have provided much-needed nutrition, and it's believed it can bolster the immune system. This could have made Steve's body stronger, more resilient, and more capable of fighting off his cancer. 
There is some question as to whether Laetrile is part of the treatment. That drug, of course, is the subject of much controversy here in the States. In Steve's hospital report, it notes that he was being injected with Laetrile. Laetrile is the form of a natural substance called amygdalin, and that's found in raw nuts, the pits of different fruits, and the pit of the apricot. The reason it was and is so controversial, it contains cyanide, which is a poison. As a result, Laetrile is banned in the United States, but there is one place that Laetrile still is legal, and that's Mexico. Wealthy people paid millions of dollars and told this will save your life. Now, you know, if you've got money, you give them you know, everything you own to get that, that, that gift of life back. My opinion, Laetrile would certainly not have caused his death. However, the highly concentrated dose of cyanide in Laetrile would have interfered with his oxygenation system, making it more difficult for him to breathe, rather than fighting off the tumor. October 1980. After three months of alternative therapy, Dr. McKee believes that Steve's condition has started to improve. We took a chest x-ray soon after he arrived, and then we uh, did it again shortly before he left. You could see the lung tissue had shrunk significantly. If this is true that Steve's tumor had shrunk, as Dr. McKee believed, that would be extraordinary and highly unusual. Whether he was recovering or not, the press soon found out about Steve's alternative treatments. A lot of people said that the so-called cancer therapy that actor Steve McQueen is getting in a hospital in Mexico is quackery. Tabloid press danced with glee. I mean, you've got a Hollywood superstar and a medical drama and a Mexican clinic, and I think it polarized opinion in the public. Those who thought he'd gone crazy and those who gave him credit for the guts to go ahead with something that other people wouldn't have. His first wife, Neil, seriously contemplated mounting a rescue mission to physically grab Steve, put him in the helicopter, and get him back into the safety of a mainstream hospital. He was being ridiculed by the media, yet because he felt it was right, he didn't let that face him, and he stuck by his guns. And I think, you know, that was Steve McQueen to a T. Steve finally agrees to make an audio statement to the world's media. The 50-year-old actor's been undergoing treatment for more than three months at this hospital in Mexico. For the first time, Steve McQueen talked. A doctor took a microphone into his room. Mexico is showing the world this new way of fighting cancer through non-specific metabolic therapies. Thank you for helping to save my life. God bless you all. Steve McQueen. Dr. Kelly, the man who devised Steve's treatment plan, was doing plenty of his own PR. You're claiming that you're making great progress in curing it. Well, we're making great progress. Steve McQueen has stepped forward and uh, challenged the medical care system in our country. October 28, 1980. Santa Paula Ranch, Southern California. Just over a week before he dies. To escape the press and publicity surrounding his illness, 
Steve and Barbara have returned to the sanctuary of their home. They are accompanied by Dr. Dwight McKee, Tina, Steve's metabolic technician, and his nurse, Annie, who are helping him to keep fighting the cancer. He was responding, but he wasn't gaining weight. He wasn't getting stronger. All his physical energy was going into fighting the tumor. Steve's in an increasing amount of pain, and he's particularly struggling with the uncomfortably large tumor in his abdomen. The sense that he had this great bulbous stomach, I think, was just offensive to him on so many different levels that he wanted it physically cut out. Steve considers the possibility of surgery to remove it. In the 1980s, surgery was not the normal course of therapy for advanced cancer patients. Firstly, it's hard to remove mesothelioma tumors. And secondly, such an invasive course of action can be fatal. November 1st, 1980, less than a week before he dies, Steve and Dr. Dwight McKee weigh up the risks of an operation. I felt like if we could debulk the tumor load in his abdomen, um, that we'd have a shot of slowly getting remission. He knew that there was significant risk with the surgery. He said, I, you know, I, I know I might die, but I think I want to do it. And that fit Steve's personality, too, was, you know, go for broke, you know, kill me or cure me. November 5th, 1980, Santa Rosa Clinic, Juarez, Mexico, two days before his death. Steve is preparing for an operation that he hopes will ease the pain and discomfort of his huge tumors. I knew that American surgeons weren't willing to touch him. And I knew this Mexican surgeon in Juarez who had operated on several of Kelly's patients who had large tumor masses and they had done well. Steve is being supported by his wife, Barbara, and his children, Chad and Terry, from his first marriage. When he arrived at the Santa Rosa Clinic, his respiratory rate was extremely high. He was breathing 32 times a minute. The normal rate is anywhere from 14 to 16 times a minute. So he was breathing extremely fast. At 8 p.m., Barbara, Terry, and Chad say goodnight. Steve needs his rest. Tomorrow is the day of his big operation. And Steve, his family, and the medical team are hopeful he can make it. Steve McQueen's death on November 7th, 1980 sent shockwaves through Hollywood. Now, world-renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter is scrutinizing Steve's medical records to uncover what was happening in his body during his final hours. Steve McQueen was suffering from pleural mesothelioma cancer, which he was treating with alternative therapy. Steve's cancer has spread from his lungs to his neck, throughout his abdomen, and it's involving most of his major organs. Steve had opted to have surgery to remove his protruding tumors, but... Operating on such an advanced cancer patient was highly risky. 7 a.m. November 6th, 1980. Less than 24 hours before Steve's death. 
Dr. Cesar Santos Vargas, a heart and kidney specialist, is ready to perform the surgery, and Steve is being prepared for going under the knife. Dr. Vargas told him he would open his abdomen, that he would take out as much tumor as he safely could. From the time that Steve decided that he was going to go for the surgery, um, <clears throat> he didn't have any hesitations. On the way to surgery, Steve gives a thumbs up to Dr. Vargas, wishing him luck. The surgery lasted four or five hours. Dr. Vargas was doing a lot of meticulous work with his, with his hands, just pulling loose uh, tumor tissue from the, the vital organs and removing as much as he could all this mass of infiltrating tumor that was in and around everything. And he, he removed probably four pounds of tumor. Steve's family are all waiting for news. They are well aware his operation is extremely risky. Dr. Vargas closed the wound. The anesthetist took off the anesthesia. Steve woke up within five or 10 minutes. He came through the surgery beautifully. First thing he did was look at his abdomen and see that it was flat and he had a huge grin and thumbs up. His vital signs were good. Um, <clears throat> everything was progressing well. Against all the odds, Steve has survived the operation. Do you want to come see him? Yes. yes. And I called Terry and Chad and Barbara into the room and they were all excited to see him and kissing him. Steve McQueen may have survived the operation. That is extraordinarily invasive procedure. When they opened him up, they removed portions of different organs, including his lung, liver, and colon. I'm concerned that post-operatively, he would have been massively open to infection. Around 2 p.m. November 6th, 1980, Steve is taken back to his hospital room. He's kept heavily sedated, and when he does wake up, he appears to be in good spirits. We thought the biggest risk was getting through the surgery. So we were all in a kind of a celebratory mood. At 5.45 p.m., Terry and Chad say goodbye to their father, and Barbara says goodbye to her husband. This is the last time they will see Steve McQueen alive. Dr. McKee, Tina, and Annie continue to carry out their observations on Steve. They check his pulse, respiration, and his heart. Just before midnight, Steve's breathing is becoming increasingly irregular, and they turn up the oxygen. He calms down after Tina feeds him some ice. A few minutes later, surgeon Dr. Vargas comes to assess his patient. Dr. Vargas said his vital signs were solid and stable, and they took the monitoring equipment away. And everybody was pretty happy. It's intriguing that after such a major operation, the surgeon removed the monitoring equipment. And this would have made it very difficult to detect any changes in Steve's condition. At around 2 a.m., 
Tina and Annie are exhausted, so they sit down and soon fall asleep. It's not long before a weary Dr. McKee follows suit. Sometime around three o'clock, I realized I had dozed off for a few minutes, and I looked over at Steve, and it didn't look right, and so I checked him and saw that that he wasn't breathing and didn't have a pulse. I woke Annie and Tina up and called Dr. Vargas. I started cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Steve is not responding and resuscitation attempts prove futile. As vital signs remain absent, Steve McQueen is pronounced dead at 3.50 a.m. on November 7, 1980. 4 a.m., Barbara is staying in a hotel very close to the Santa Rosa Clinic. Hello? Barbara knew just by the phone ringing that she had died. And she was very distraught. I had really grown to love Steve and really wanted to see him recover. Just was a sad day and to lose a friend who, with whom I'd grown up and was very close to a great, rich, talent, warm, loving guy. Steve McQueen died today, 50 years old. He was operated on yesterday and died today. Although Steve had advanced cancer, I don't believe it directly killed him. I believe that there are numerous other possible reasons for his death. In instances of sudden death, one of the first things the pathologist considers is a pulmonary embolism. And that's where a clot is formed in the deep veins of the legs, broken off and traveled through the heart and into the pulmonary artery, obstructing the artery and causing the heart to stop. Dr. Vargas said, look, his, his nail beds are pink. He had a pulmonary embolus. The time frame for me doesn't fit for a pulmonary embolism. This is really too soon after the surgery. And typically, pulmonary embolism occurs anywhere from days to weeks following a procedure like this. However, given his advanced cancer, it's possible that he did develop a deep vein thrombosis even before the surgery. And he could have had a pulmonary embolism. It's impossible to rule it out. Dr. Kelly had his own theory. Steve had been poisoned. Steve McQueen was pronounced dead on November 7, 1980. The Hollywood star had pleural mesothelioma cancer, and he died following an apparently successful operation to remove his tumors. In a curious twist, the man who had developed Steve's alternative cancer therapy program, dentist Dr. Kelly, insisted that Steve McQueen was maliciously poisoned. Dr. Kelly said that a government agent had come in and, and put a blood coagulating substance in his IV. 
Kelly's strongly put theory is that as a result of that, he had formed a blood clot in or around his heart and had had a heart attack. The obvious question is, why would anyone have done that? And Kelly's answer to that was that had Steve survived to testify to his recovery, that would have been such an insult to the mainstream American medical industry that had written him off that he could not be allowed to return from that clinic. That is consistent with Kelly's level of paranoia that he would make up a story like that. If Steve McQueen dies, does that mean that your uh, treatment is a failure? Well, that's what the establishment, that's what the medical community would like to say, but that's not true. But Dr. Hunter is unconvinced by the idea of foul play. The degree of the invasive procedure and the amount of tumor that the surgeon removed, it would be likely that Steve developed a coagulopathy. And that's where someone has an inability to clot, which results in internal bleeding. To stem the bleeding, Steve would have desperately needed coagulating fluids. So even if Kelly's theory was correct, this mysterious agent would have more likely helped Steve than have killed him. But Dr. Kelly said Steve must have been murdered because it was clear he had been cured. Kelly was adamant that McQueen was on the road to recovery and that essentially what they were doing was a form of cosmetic surgery. They were physically removing the lump that had grown on McQueen's stomach and that it was no more than really pulling out something that was already dead. There is no evidence whatsoever that supports Dr. Kelly's claim that Steve McQueen's tumors were dead. Dr. McKee also didn't believe they were dead, but he hoped they were shrinking. I have here the actual x-rays that were taken of Steve reportedly showing a decrease in the amount of tumor in a very short period of time. This was the initial x-ray, and this was the follow-up. The second x-ray is more overexposed than the first. So it appears as if the tumor is shrinking, but in fact, there is less detail in the image. Even though the alternative therapy did ensure that Steve was getting proper nutrition to help fight his cancer, I don't believe his cancer was responding really in any way to his therapy. The publicity surrounding Steve's therapy was enormous. And in spite of this, Dr. Kelly continued to run the Kelly program for another 10 years. He died in 2005. So if alternative therapy didn't save Steve and cancer didn't directly kill him, what was the reason for his death? I would certainly challenge the death certificate. On the first line, it has acute myocardial infarction, which is a heart attack. Now, the tumor and this major procedure would put a lot of stress on the heart, but there is no indication that he actually had a heart attack. So if Steve didn't die from a heart attack, what killed him? It's clear that Steve's mesothelioma cancer had spread far beyond his lungs by the time that he died. It was also in the neck, abdomen, liver, his bladder, his rectum, and his intestines. In order to get rid of all of this tumor, the procedure was incredibly invasive. On top of that, he has cancer involving the lungs, and that puts him at extremely high risk of infection. 
So I believe Steve developed a pneumonia, and this is where the air sacs are filled with pus. The pneumonia would have further harmed the lining of his airways, probably resulting in blood poisoning or septicemia, which would have continued to reduce his respiratory function. So Steve McQueen's post-operative complications were numerous. The removal of this invasive tumor, his developing a coagulopathy with internal bleeding, his developing a pneumonia, and likely developing septicemia. This was a very high-risk, very low-reward procedure that left Steve on a downward spiral. In the end, multiple organs are starting to fail, and he's developing pulmonary edema or excessive fluid in the lungs, which hampers the ability to properly oxygenate the blood. Because of this, he goes unconscious and develops cardiorespiratory arrest and ultimately dies. In my opinion, Steve was not going to survive his mesothelioma, but this surgical procedure both facilitated and ultimately accelerated his death. Steve McQueen once said that if anyone ever made a movie of his life, they should probably call it The Great Escape. He had escaped a hard childhood. He'd escaped racing fast cars and motorcycles. He tried to escape cancer, but that was the one thing that he could not escape. I have a great deal of fondness and um, admiration for his courage, for his tenacity. He really did hang in there and try as hard as he could to get better. He often remarked that he thought he would die young. So it was just go for it. You just put your foot down and see what happens. I am really proud to have known him, deeply proud of having directed him. And I think that the, the world lost somebody with real greatness when he died. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autopsy. Don't forget to subscribe at podcastone.com with the Podcast One app or at Apple Podcasts. Then go to reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, for clips, extras, and more from the TV version of the series, including reenactments and autopsy photos you'll only see on Reels channel. Find Reels on your TV at reels.com. I'm Dr. Michael Hunter. 